Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, Trade and U.S. Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about Canada, because as some of you may have heard, they are involved in some trade negotiations with the U.S. So we thought we should talk to some Canadians. We spoke to Meredith Lilly. Meredith is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and that's in Ottawa. We also spoke to my colleague, Madeleine Drohan, who is the Canada correspondent for The Economist. Madeleine has been covering US-Canada trade relations for a while. She remembers when Canada negotiated its first free trade deal with the US. In the mid-80s, Canada had what they called a Royal Commission on the Economy, one of these things that doesn't happen very much anymore, but they probably spent a couple of years doing consultations across the country. And in their final report, one of the things they recommended was that Canada should negotiate a free trade arrangement with the the U.S. And that was actually one of the main points in the 1988 election. It was quite, uh, the parties were quite divided on it, but ultimately the party that wanted it won. And uh, so they negotiated first this bilateral deal. It came into effect in 1989. And it made a lot of sense because Canada was already overwhelmingly dependent on the U.S. for trade. Now, the U.S. is a lot bigger than Canada. And so the initial controversy came out of a fear that Canada would become too reliant on the U.S. market. Canadians had lived in fear forever of being overrun by the Americans becoming part of the U.S. And it, the argument against the deal was that by lowering trade barriers, this would be allow more American dominance of the Canadian economy. But they decided to go ahead with it. And some of the things that are controversial today, something called Chapter 19 in particular, were controversial back then as well. When the original Canada-U.S. bilateral deal was being negotiated, the biggest point of dispute was over whether how disputes, how trade disputes between the two countries would be settled. Now, the Americans, and this is still true to the current day, want disputes settled through American courts. And the Canadians wanted something a bit more independent than that. And that, this, this really lasted uh, throughout the negotiations. And at one point, the Canadian team walked out to make their point. And in the, they, in the end, they won. And what they won was something that's called Chapter 19, which basically says that if one government wants to cha- challenge the duties imposed by the other government, they can take it to a panel And that put the Canadian minds at rest. In the end, Canada got its Chapter 19, this system of settling disputes about defensive duties like anti-dumping duties or countervailing duties, Chad's favourites. Chapter 19 is supposed to offer Canada some protection when the Americans hit them with these tariffs. So that was all agreed. And then, having done this deal, the US started thinking about signing a deal with Mexico. When Canada found out that uh, the U.S. and Mexico were contemplating a bilateral deal, uh, they, they, first of all, they were quite standoffish about it and thought, huh, you know, let those guys go ahead. But then it was decided that there was a risk that Mexico would gain some preferential access to the U.S. to the detriment of Canada. And so Canada decided that it wanted to be part of those trilateral talks. 
There is a sense in Canada and has been for a long time that they have a special relationship with the U.S. And at the time, the Mexicans were sort of seen as interlopers. This is all from the Canadian perspective. So they did decide to join in. Um, and I think they were relatively happy with the outcome of the NAFTA talks. And uh, Canadians have felt very positive about NAFTA ever since in comparison to the U.S. And they even feel more positive about it than the Mexicans do. NAFTA gets signed and implemented in the mid-1990s. Great. Here's Meredith Lilly on what the Canadian trade strategy has been for the last decade or so. I think that one of the big priorities for Canadian trade strategy in the past decade has been opening up additional markets, the reason being that Canada's dependence and reliance on American markets has placed us at times in a difficult position with the United States, not unlike now. So opening new markets has been one of the major uh, focuses of trade strategy. Having said that, the single most important thing that Canada and the Canadian government always needs to do is to maintain access to the United States and to maintain good trading relationships with our number one trading partner. Canada negotiated a trade deal with the European Union. It joined the CPTPP. But it's just really close to the US. Distance does matter when it comes to trade. And that makes diversification really difficult. Here's Madeline. The Canadians have been appalled by Mr. Trump's attitude towards NAFTA and his threats to rip it up. And more recently, going on about how Canada has been taking advantage of the U.S. like every other country, according to the U.S. president, because they just don't see it like that. The Canadians may have these other trade agreements, but they still do have to deal with the U.S. So when President Donald Trump demands a renegotiation of NAFTA, they don't really have all that much choice. Now, we appear to be, maybe, in the final stages of negotiations. And one controversial topic is flaring up again. Chapter 19 has kind of reached mythical status in Canada because when the original deal was negotiated, this was sort of the hill that Canada was willing to die on and was prepared to walk away from the negotiating table over. And so it's often thrown around in popular Canadian mythology around NAFTA without a lot of awareness of the nuts and bolts of what's in it. And so... Many know about the various problems that exist in Chapter 19 and that it hasn't always worked as intended. And so I do think that if it were capped, that uh, we would certainly need to see some revisions. But if I were to put my political hat on, I would say that most Canadians don't know what's in Chapter 19. They won't know what's in Chapter 19 when NAFTA's over, so long as there's a chapter called Chapter 19. Only a very small proportion of trade-savvy citizens, the kind of people who are listening to this show right now, will even know what's in it. So chapter 19 really matters to us trade geeks. I would argue that its existence might actually contribute to the relatively few times the Americans have actually imposed these duties on Canada's exports since the 1980s. But while Justin Trudeau is signaling that he wants something like it, most of the ordinary Canadians out there might not actually mind that much if it weren't included. Maybe. Another area of controversy is Canada's cultural exceptions. Here's Meredith to explain. 
The original cultural exemption that has existed without change since the Canada-US trade agreement was signed protects Canada's cultural industries from having to comply with many parts of the Canada-US free trade agreement. So that means that foreign buyers can't buy our radio stations, but it also means that all of our cultural creations that are distributed either by television, radio, print format are protected under this exemption. Therefore, free trade doesn't have to happen in this particular industry. The problem with the current cultural exemption is that there is no language around the internet. And as we all know, the vast majority of cultural products, music, books, news, are distributed via the internet. And so things like Netflix, where in the United States, there are no real restrictions around uh, foreign audiovisual content on Netflix, um, if the Canadian government is to want to place those kinds of restrictions onto Canadian Netflix, Netflix that watchers can view in my country, then it's likely that NAFTA would need some clarifying language around whether or not the online environment is included in a cultural protection, cultural exemption. Right now, there's no language to create those protections, and so it would be a gaping hole in a 21st century NAFTA agreement not to make reference to the internet and its place in cultural industries. There have been some reports that this argument is about Canadian negotiators wanting to restrict the ability of American companies to buy up local radio stations. And that has been reflected in some statements that Justin Trudeau has been making. But it doesn't really seem like that's what it's all about. Here's Meredith. I would be surprised if the U.S. isn't willing to accept certain restrictions on foreign takeovers of Canadian media. And so what I really think this is about is the regulation of online audiovisual content that's accessible in Canada. Uh, this is an issue that Canada was able to gain exemptions from in TPP-11, that it wasn't able to gain exemptions from in P TPP-12, which included the United States. And so I think that there's a real lack of understanding about what a cultural exemption means and how it may play into other aspects of intellectual property protection. And in this case, I think it's very likely that the discussion is actually centered around the ability of the U.S. to export online audiovisual content to Canadians and the extent to which the Canadian government is or isn't willing to accept that. So, Chapter 19, Cultural Exceptions. There is another big one. One of the most difficult issues on all of the trade agreements that we have signed recently, so that would include the Trans-Pacific Partnership and its replacement, as well as Canada's agreement with Europe, is around supply management in the dairy sector. Here's Madeline explaining what dairy supply management actually is. Farmers produce milk, for example, under quota and they can't produce any more than their quota is. And that quota is set to ensure that the local market has enough milk. But something like that cannot operate unless you make sure that you constrain imports or l limit them quite severely. So that's what supply management is in Canada. It's not a complete ban on imports, but it's pretty close to complete. Madeleine also says that there is a debate within Canada about whether supply management should continue. 
Only the dairy, egg, and poultry producers get it, and farmers in other sectors are asking, "Hey, should should they really have that?" Still, politically, this just seems really hard to dismantle this type of a system. Here's Meredith. Dairy and supply management in Canada is basically a third rail in our country. All of our major political parties have a position that they support supply management. The system has been around for a very long time. It supports thousands of farmers and the communities that they live in. And on top of that, the dairy lobby in Canada is extremely well organized and very well funded.、Uh, so this is. Uh, not dissimilar to the situation in the United States, where rural sectors have greater political representation than than urban ones. In this case, whenever dairy is touched upon, it inevitably means the government is going to be fighting with farmers. And I can't think of any government on the planet who likes fighting with farmers. Again, there's a worry that Canada will be completely dominated by the U.S. If you dismantle the supply management system in Canada, the real fear is that the U.S. would take over the market completely. There are more dairy cows in Wisconsin, one U.S. state, than there are in all of Canada, and it's so close. It's just across the border, you know, all of this、uh, milk, and so that's the concern: is that. In fact, it would mean the end of the dairy market altogether if、uh, supply management was dismantled. Dismantling supply management is probably not going to happen. Much more likely is that the American negotiators agree to extra export access to the Canadian dairy market for American farmers. You effectively increase the quota that they're going to be allowed. Another area of controversy that we should mention is intellectual property. There's this funny kind of drug called biologics, and the Mexicans agreed to give that kind of drug ten years of IP protection, and that was up from the eight years that were originally agreed as part of the TPP. Now, in general, agreeing stronger intellectual property protection for pharmaceutical products can be controversial. It can interfere with domestic healthcare systems. It can make it harder for companies to make cheaper generic or unbranded drugs. Pharma protections and the biologic issue, in particular, is of interest because Canada has a large. Generic industry. We do have brand name pharma industry, but we also have a large generic industry. And so, what you often see around pharmaceutical issues is a split of interests at the stakeholder level. But the the big difference around pharmaceutical changes in trade agreements that we experience in Canada, the big sort of policy difference that we experience here is that. Provincial governments are frequently on the hook for paying for pharmaceutical products for senior citizens and low-income citizens in virtually across the country. And so, if Canada makes concessions or agrees with a trading partner to provide greater IP protection around pharmaceutical patents. Inevitably, that means that the cost of drugs is going to go up for some period of time for a subset of Canadians, and a, a large portion of those Canadians、uh, have their drugs paid for by the provincial government. And so, one of the things that happened when we were concluding the agreement with Europe was that the federal government made a commitment. 
to compensate provinces for the difference that they would incur financially around paying higher prices for drugs on behalf of citizens as a result of the changes that were made in CETA. So now that that commitment has been made and that relationship has been reflected between the federal government and the provincial government, if Canada were to make concessions in NAFTA around biologics, specifically agree to the 10-year patent protection that has been outlined between Mexico and the United States, then it would be expected that the provinces would ask the federal government to compensate them, and that would actually be quite an expensive bill. Having gone through some of these difficult and long-standing issues between the Canadians and the Americans, we asked Meredith what she thought a good deal would look like. The, the best possible deal at this point is definitely not what I think the best possible deal might have been at the outset of these negotiations, but recognizing where we are at it at this point, I think that if Canada were to negotiate some small access to the dairy sector, I think that that in exchange for the United States not coming after a bunch of other areas that are important to Canada, I actually think that that probably will be the, the best that we can hope for. Remember that controversy back in the 1980s that signing a trade deal with such a massive country would allow them to dominate and leave Canada vulnerable? Yeah. Essentially, it looks like America's turned around, demanded new things, and right now, even the status quo seems like a win, as long as there's just a bit more certainty. All of this reminds me of a really excellent economics paper that I read in the mid-1990s called Size, Sunk Cost, and Judge Bowker's Objection to Free Trade. This was a paper written then by Professor John McLaren. He's now at the University of Virginia. But the basic idea in the paper was... Canada was hesitant to sign a free trade agreement in the 1980s with the United States, primarily because it was worried about making all of these irreversible investments, reorienting its market to export to the United States for fear out of the Americans would then be able to take it hostage, essentially, and erode its bargaining power and take things away from it sometime off in the future. Looks like The Economist saw it coming all along. That is all from Trade Talks. Thank you so much to Madeleine Drohan of The Economist and Meredith Lilly of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. And also a huge thank you to Colin Warren, our audio guy, for stitching this all together. As usual, tell everyone you know, everyone you like, everyone you don't like about the podcast. Tweet your favorite episodes, tweet at us. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because just one attempt at journalism wasn't enough. Last week, Chad went to his first ever press conference. This week, he went to his first NAFTA stakeout. Here's some journalism he did. He took cookies. Sabrina Rodriguez, I work covering trade at Politico. We are standing right on the steps of the Winder building. It's the USTR building. This is where a lot of us have spent many hours covering the NAFTA negotiations. We went from really nice air-conditioned rounds to having to stand out here in hopes of catching um, Christia Freeland or Ildefonso Guajardo. It's been about, ooh, it's been about 20 days for sure, and it's been over 80 hours of standing outside. I calculated it last week. Of all of the trade podcasts, who provides the best cookies? Oh, Trade Talks for sure, without a doubt. Great work, Chad.